How's it going, everybody? I hope you all had a great weekend uh, because I had a great weekend because uh, as a St. Mary's love, anytime you can beat the Zags, uh, it is a great weekend and even better when you do it against the number one team in the nation. Uh, welcome back to the unofficial WCC Hoops podcast. I'm still trying to recover my voice from uh, being at the game last night. It was an incredible atmosphere at uh, McEwen Pavilion. I don't like the name UCU. I, I will stand by that. Um, but that was one of the that was one of the best college basketball environments uh, you're going to ever witness uh for those who got to be there in person they know what i'm talking about uh just uh the student section was high energy from uh the moment they got into the building nine 90 minutes before tip up and through up till uh they rushed the court and were there for it for at least another 30 minutes after the game was over um just a a great performance from saint mary's um and obviously, uh, yesterday wrapped up uh, the the WCC regular season. So now we are on to Las Vegas. Uh, we've have our final standings. We've had them readjusted slightly uh, using the Ken Palm adjusted formula. And really, the only change was a flipping of LMU and Pacific in eight nine. And grand scheme of things, doesn't make a difference because they're playing each other in the first round anyway. So. As we get ready for the WCC tournament, which begins on Thursday, uh, we will see uh, LMU take on Pacific and San Diego take on Pepperdine. And then on Friday, BYU will take on the winner of the LMU Pacific game. Portland, will, who is the sixth seed, will take on the winner of San Diego and Pepperdine. And so the format of this episode, uh, we're going to go over a few things. So first off is going to be uh, a recap of what we saw between St. Mary's and Gonzaga. And then what, and then taking a look at what teams need tournament potential NCAA tournament teams need in Vegas, specifically, what does BYU need? What does USF need? We'll touch a little bit on Santa Clara, but Santa Clara's one and only path really is win the whole thing. Um, and we'll, dive into all that also just kind of briefly touch on some storylines that um are likely going to be talked about once everyone gets to las vegas uh in the coming days so let's start with let's start with saint mary's and gonzaga same the 23rd ranked Gales beat num the number one team in the land gonzaga 67 57 St. Mary's was a 10 and a half point underdog going into it. They win by double digits. They really had control of this game from beginning to end. Uh, this is St. Mary's second win over a number one team. And it's the first time they've done it at home. The other time was the 2019 championship game where they also beat Gonzaga. The 57 points was a season low for Gonzaga. And over the last five seasons, the Zags have failed to score 60 points only three times, and all three times it was St. Mary's. This was a game plan that was executed to perfection by 
by St. Mary's. They controlled it from beginning to end. And it was really um, focused on this team's defense, which has been the hallmark of this team for all season long. And it really showed it was at its best last night. I felt they held drew Timmy to two for 10 from the field. They, they collapse on him every time he touched the ball. Chet Holmgren had six points, six rebounds. The six points is his third lowest total of the season. The six rebounds is his second lowest point total, uh, lowest rebounding total of the season. They held maybe are arguably the best front court in the country to 12 points. Andrew Nebhard is one of the most dangerous players in the country when he is distributing the ball and he had zero assists last um, on Saturday night, which is the first time that has happened in his four-year college career. Two years at Florida, two years at Gonzaga, he has never had zero assists. Gonzaga shot a season low 36% from the field. They were out rebounded for only the fifth time all year. And the 33 uh, boards was their second lowest total of the year. And that was a big transition for, or big switch and a focus for St. Mary's. St. Mary's was out rebounded the first time around by 11. And St. Mary's is a good rebounding team, not a great rebounding team, but they are a good rebounding team. And they really put the focus on making sure that they cleared the glass and limited Gonzaga to one opportunity each time down. And you really saw that in the first half. They held Gonzaga to a mere four assists. This is Gonzaga is one of the better teams at, at finding the open man, really moving the ball around. And that was... That was also an, another impressive note. There's so many different notes that you can kind of point to in this game. On the off the bench in that first half, Mitchell Saxon and Gabe Mullins uh, were incredible. Uh, 14 points combined between the two of them. You're really starting to see, and those two are going to be key components to uh, the Gales teams moving forward. And both of them have played with so much more confidence in the last few weeks. Uh, there was one stretch in the first half. Uh, that comes to mind uh, where uh, Saxon was matched up on Chet Holmgren, a couple different possessions. Uh, Chet caught the ball at the top and tried two different uh, moves, trying to start at the top of the key and get him toward the basket. And Saxon was able to stay in front of him and made him give the ball up both times. Uh, Saxon's patience on the offensive end was also really impressive. We saw that a couple times with Holmgren and Timmy. Uh, and then Mullins, uh, the lat, the, in conference play, has been has taken a big step up. Uh, he's shooting a team best 46% from three. And then in the second half, it seemed that Randy Bennett was able to stay one step ahead of the Zags. Every time Gonzaga chipped away at the lead, St. Mary's had an answer. They got to stop. They were able to stave off the comeback. And yes, there was some interesting clock management at the end. I thought with a minute left that it would turn into more of a free throw game. I thought Mark Few would try to extend that game out to make sure that uh, his team had a greater chance. He didn't do that. And this game 
outside of a stretch there at the beginning of the second half, because I did think that was played a little bit more of a Gonzaga pace. This game, as we've seen time and time again with St. Mary's teams, they dictate the pace. You are going to play the way they want you to play. And this is by far, to me, Randy Bennett's best coaching job of his career. There have been so many good teams over the, over the last 15, 20 years that, that we've seen come out of St. Mary's. But this one, considering where we, what people thought of this team at the beginning of the year, what this team looked like in the offseason, it's almost a complete transformation of what this, of what this team is. Remember, they were 14 and 10 a year ago. And yes, there were a lot of injuries. There were a number of components that contributed COVID that contributed to uh, that, that finish last year. There's, there was no clear number one. There's still no clear number one. The team struggled early on this season to find its offensive identity. And now they have it. And they continue to be one of the best defensive teams in the country, which again, if you backtrack even just two or three seasons, that was not the identity of a St. Mary's team. You, most people, if you, the casual fan, if you mentioned these St. Mary's teams, they were, these were high scoring teams. The Patty Millses, the Matthew Delvadovas, the Jock Landale teams all could score. This team does it by slowing the pace and playing amazing defense. So now let's turn to Gonzaga. And I, I saw a lot of the tweets and was listening to some of the commentary that was happening after the Gonzaga loss. And I, I'm not jumping off the ship. I'm not going to say that this means really much of anything as far as what, as far as anything for the NCAA tournament, if anything, this is actually going to be a big learning tool for them moving forward, because there were a lot of things that happened in that game last night that you just don't see and haven't happened to a lot of these players. They had their worst offensive night of the season. They, Drew Timmy had maybe the worst game of his career. Chet Holmgren looked human. Nebhardt was turned into a volume uh, shooter, and he went six for 18. But the way I look at it is that these are aberrations. These are not the norm. This is not an easy thing to do to Gonzaga because what we have seen over the course of the season, and take your pick on, whatever really top tier team. Some teams are able to take away Chet. Some teams took away Timmy. Some teams are able to take away Strother or Nebhard. No one's been able to take away all of them or really change the way that they play. Gonzaga largely dictates its pace to everyone else. Now they may, they may miss some shots or they may have an off shooting night or whatnot, but they largely dictate to other teams. Very rarely do you see Gonzaga get dictated to. Even in the other games that Gonzaga had lost earlier this year, 
those are played largely at Gonzaga's pace. They want to run up and down the loss to Duke. They want to run up and down the loss to Alabama. And same, so same race deserves a lot of credit for making Gonzaga play differently. And they've done this both times. Even the game in Spokane, that was played at St. Mary's pace. But this is going to be a learning experience for the Zags. I don't see there being much of a problem. Uh, I don't see there being long-term problems. If there's anything that might be a bit more concerning is the is a production from the bench, which the last few games has been has has definitely not lived up to what we've seen throughout the course of the season. And specifically, this is looking at Anton Watson, Nolan Hickman, and Hunter Salas. They were held scoreless against St. Mary's the other night. They only had seven at USF last Thursday. They only had three against Santa Clara the, the weekend before. They only had six against St. Mary's a couple weeks ago. And yes, the bench did get shorter because of the opponents. That's part of what we have seen so far. But it's also showing that in the few minutes that they have been able to get onto the court, they've been far less effective than we have seen them in throughout the course of the season. And that's maybe the one thing that's a little concerning because the deeper that into March that the Zags get, the more important that they will be. And they will need bigger nights and good nights from all of them as this run continues, because it's not always going to be Bolton or Nebhardt or Timmy or Holmgren, they're going to need some support elsewhere. And look, and a lot of times that's going to have to come from someone off the bench. And these guys <clears throat> have been that crew all season long. So I, I'm not, I'm not looking at there being too many issues. I think just that that is a group that going forward, we need to see some improvement from if the Zags are really going to go deeper and deeper in into uh, the NCAA tournament. All right. So let's take a step back and talk a little bit more about the NCAA tournament. And uh, this time we'll focus on, and we'll go back to same areas. So before Saturday night, they were hovering around that eight, nine line on CBS had them there. ESPN had them there, a few other places like the eight and nine range is about where St. Mary's was. After the win on Saturday, CBS bumped them up to a five seed, which would be the highest the program has ever had. They've been a seven seed a couple of times, but the but never higher than that. So the five is looking good right now. We'll see where ESPN uh, relocates them. It to me, I think that ESPN is kind of actually undersold some of the teams, and I'll I'll get into um, the underselling of USF in a bit. And take again, and let's go back and look at the resume. St. Mary's is nine and six in quad one, quad two games. They'll likely get another opportunity against. A, for a Q2 game in Santa Clara. And then they will likely get a Q1 game from either USF or if they are able to get by Santa Clara, then they'll have another opportunity for a Q1 game 
against either USF, Gonzaga, or BYU. BYU right now is a Q2 game, but if BYU is somehow able to see St. Mary's, which will be in the title game, they're going to have to beat both USF and Gonzaga. And so then by then, yes, those two wins will make them a Q1 game. And moving up to a five, so you couldn't move them a little closer to home. I mean, I would really like it for it to be San Diego or Portland because then maybe I can make the quick flight out from the Bay Area. This is going to be uh, Randy Bennett's eighth tournament appearance. We've seen the last few times that this team is basically almost penciled in for a win when they go. The last uh, the last appearance, obviously, they did lose to uh, Villanova, but then the time before that, they did uh, they picked up a win against VCU and played Arizona really tough after that. So I'm pretty excited to kind of see because uh, the way they played on Saturday against Gonzaga, if St. Mary's is able to play that well in the NCAA tournament, that is a team that could be in the Sweet 16, if not advance further. All right, so now let's get back to Vegas. And we'll go to BYU first, then we'll talk about USF. Okay, so BYU. ESPN has BYU as one of the last four out. Their net is 50, their Ken Palm is 50. They're seven and eight in their Q1, Q2. They've had four Q1 opportunities since January 27th, and they are 0-4 in those games. Santa Clara, USF, St. Mary's, and Gonzaga. They also have the Q4 loss to Pacific, and that loss is looking worse by the day because Pacific is now at 294. So to secure themselves of being in the tournament and... BYU is really in a tough spot because, uh, because of that net ranking and that losing streak right in the middle of conference play. Obviously, they're going to have to take care of business against the 8-9 opponent. And then they're going to have to beat USF in the quarterfinals. And they're also going to have to have a much better showing against Gonzaga than they had either of the first two times. I don't think they'll have to win against Gonzaga, but they're going to have to be at least competitive. Now, obviously, if I think if they want to secure that they get in, beat, Gonzaga, beat USF and Gonzaga, then you'll be in. Because I think that even if they beat USF, I could say I think they should be in, but I wouldn't be sitting completely easy on selection Sunday, if that were the case. But there's also uh, reports now that they are trying to secure another Q1 game um, in the few days that are leading up to the tournament so that they can potentially have another opportunity at one of these teams. Now, let's let flip that around. I've talked about what they need to do to get in. If they lose either that or the USF game, that's going to secure their ticket to the NIT. They're too close to the bubble 
for for them to go anywhere else. They started so strong in the non-conference. They started so strong in conference play. And it has just all come unraveled in the last month and a half. And yes, they did get it did they looked far more impressive over this past weekend than they did uh the week before, or I guess I should say uh two weeks before against LMU and Pepperdine. But they've dug themselves too, they've dug themselves nearly too deep of a hole. So we'll I think they they have to get USF at least. Beacon Zaga and you've secured it. But the the uphill climb for BYU to beat Gonzaga, I to me seems far too great based on what we've seen the first two go rounds. All right, so for USF, ESPN has them as one of the last four in, so they're playing they're playing one of the play in games and they're a twelve seed. USF is a net twenty eight. They have a Ken Palm of twenty four. They are seven and seven against Q1, Q2. They do have the Q4 loss to Portland. So here's the thing about USF. I don't know why they are a bubble team. The metrics love them. Their record is good. They've done the work against the better teams that they have played. I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's the Q4 loss. Uh, maybe the rest of the, because the rest of the resume says they should be in. So I'm, I'm confused here. And so let's, let's take a step back and go break down USF's um, resume just a little bit more. So they're 22 and eight. Again, we have the Ken Palm is 24, the net is 28. They're Q1, they're three and five. All right. They're Q2, five and two. Their opponent net rank is 87. So, yes, that does get dipped a bit because the, they have the Pepperdines and the LMUs and the, the Pacifics on the schedule. So, that does drag it down a little bit. Or, or at least it drag, I'm not going to say a little bit, it just drags it down. All right, so here's the resume of a team that is in and doesn't is about a seed above where USF is, but it does not have to play a play-in game. They are tw- This team is 21 and 8. They have a Ken Palm of 40, a net of 40, Q1, they are one and seven. Q2, they are four and oh. But they also have a Q4 loss. And their opponent net rank is 47. So the opponent net rank is far greater than USF's. But the Ken Palm and the net are worse. Their performance against Q1 is worse. To me, it seems like this team should be the one sitting behind USF, and it's not close. This team is North Carolina. And 
this is the thing that bothers me that in a year where the ACC is legitimately down, in a year where USF has played so well and done everything basically that you could ask a mid-major team to do, in a conference that has the best team in the country, in a conference that has two other perennial powers in it, in St. Mary's and BYU, they've done everything you possibly could have asked of them. And they've done, and they put together a resume that should put them solidly in the tournament. Yet we see here that as an example of a major conference school getting in, even though the resume doesn't speak to being as great as a mid-major program. And as a, as a alum of two different places in this conference, at C, being, especially being a St. Mary's fan, an alum who has seen our team get snubbed more times than I would like to count because our because a middle tier mid high major program had more opportunities against Q1 teams and maybe won a few more got in how how is how is north carolina even in this conversation they have one Q1 win i am so confused i i don't understand how these two teams are where they are because everything I see tells me USF's the better team. And USF has done more and USF has done all of it. I'm this sort of thing baffles me about the way the committee works, the way every, everything is put together. So all that aside, it sounds like USF has work to do, even though I think they should have, it's already been done. So here's what USF has to do. Beat BYU, period. I, if they take care of BYU in the corner final, I think that'll do it. And yes, so the BYU-USF game could be seen as a pseudo elimination game for the NCAA tournament. If BYU wins, they might be in and USF might be knocked out. If USF wins, BYU is definitely knocked out. If USF gets to the semis against Gonzaga, I think that should take care of it. Now, the only thing that can throw a wrench into this is if BYU is eliminated before the quarterfinals. If, the, if either LMU or Pacific knock off BYU and they're the team that ends up facing USF. I, I think then USF is going to have to, if you want to secure the at-large bid, beat Gonzaga. Otherwise, I think they're going to be, there should be some serious nervous energy on selection Sunday. Uh, if you, if that scenario happens, because again, the challenge of beating Gonzaga in a neutral environment, I say neutral because that place usually turns into Spokane South um, when we all get to, to Vegas. USF 
needs to hope that BYU wins their wins their um, first round match, second round matchup to face USF then in the quarterfinals. And then USF needs to take care of business, beat BYU, which will be another Q2 game, and then head on to the semis against Gonzaga. And then everything from there is going to be icing on the cake. And then as we look forward to the rest of Vegas, I think there's some other interesting storylines that are going to come out of this, or there are interesting storylines going in. Portland not playing the opening round for the first time since 2016, it to me is really exciting to just see one of these teams really turn it around and it got turned around so fast. The job that Shantae Leggins has done in just his first year, they're at, they're at 17 and 13 in year one. And this was a team that hadn't won seven conference games in the last five years, and he did it in year one. I just, just the vast improvement of that program and the energy that you've already started to see build around it lets you know that when Portland is good, it is good for everyone else. And the energy of that, of that city, and that is a basketball town. I mean, the, the Blazers are obviously the, the top attraction uh, in, in that city. Oregon, obviously, Oregon is always going to be big because it's just down the road in Eugene. Uh, but if Portland basketball can get back to being good, that's, the child center is a building that can really rock when, when it's given the opportunity. And then another one is going to be kind of this idea of the equity of games being played, not played, rescheduled, and then the Ken Palm adjusted rankings. So there was quite a bit of chatter uh, today as I record this on Sunday about when the conference released uh, the adjusted rankings and everything else, there was quite a bit of chatter about the the equity or inequity of how some of the games are rescheduled or not rescheduled. Everyone points out that Santa Clara looks like they backed out of their game against Portland a few weeks back, and that game could have been the difference between Santa Clara being the four seed and USF being the three rather than Santa Clara holding the three and USF four. And yeah, there's going to be some of that conversation. And then you could also look at the fact that Pacific wasn't given, wasn't, didn't get the Gonzaga game rescheduled. That's for Pacific. That was going to be their top revenue game of the year. For most WCC teams, the Gonzaga game is just that you sell that thing out. You have a lot more energy around campus. You get the students more involved. It's, it's a big deal when Gonzaga comes to town, not to boost, Gonzaga's ego anymore, but that's just the reality of what of what the other schools look at it as. And the fact that that game wasn't rescheduled, that's that's ticket money that they missed out on. You could say the same thing for uh, St. Mary's, uh, the fact that they didn't have one of their games rescheduled. You could say the same thing for BYU because they didn't have one of their games rescheduled. So I think that's going to be that I think is going to come up 
in Vegas when everyone is together. Um, there's lots that conversation is probably going to happen behind closed doors, but now hopefully it won't be an issue come next year because everyone will be playing back to their regular schedules and we won't have to have postponements or whatnot, but we'll see. And, and then another storyline since moving to Vegas, only Gonzaga, St. Mary's and BYU have made the championship game. Can anyone else do it? And if there's one team that might be in a good position to make that happen, it might be Santa Clara. They were picked fifth in the preseason. They're, they finished third in third place. They win their quarterfinal matchup. They'll see St. Mary's and they've already beaten St. Mary's once. They have the opportunity to do something that they haven't been able to do since 2006. And that's reach a WCC championship game. And then the potential rematch, grudge match between St. Mary's and Gonzaga. They split the two regular season matchups, and this will be one of the only times, I believe it's only been twice, when both teams knew that they were going to be in the NCAA tournament and met in the title game. 2012 and then in 2020, which was obviously the COVID year. I think it's this game to me always seems like it's going to just be about pride, about just about the rivalry, and maybe there's less quote on the line because there's not an NCAA tournament berth or whatnot on the line in this game. But I think it just adds to just the rivalry to play one of these games where it is, it's going to be more about just kind of like the purity of the game, just the pride that these two teams are going to show in trying to win a comp, a conference tournament championship uh, without the, without the, I guess the, and I'm blanking on the word, the necessity for the win. And I think that's going to be really interesting kind of going into into the weekend and seeing how that all plays out. Uh, The tournament begins on Thursday with the opening round games. You got the the second round matchups on Friday, quarterfinals on Saturday. You got the day off Sunday and then the semis on on next Monday and then the championship game that following Tuesday. And I'll be putting together another episode for next Monday before the semifinals. So we'll be able to break down where we are, where we are going into that. And then also we'll try to put something together uh, before we get to selection Sunday, because obviously that's going to be a huge, huge um, weekend for the conference. The forbid WCC is still alive. We'll see um, how everything plays out this weekend and how that impacts it. And it, I, I still just can't believe we're already here. We're already into March. It's exciting. And I'm looking forward to see how it all, all plays out. All right. Well, well that'll do it for um, the final regular season episode of the unofficial WCC Hoops podcast. Be sure to 
subscribe on your favorite streaming service. Follow me on Twitter at Post by Zach. And let's just get this going. Um, again, I'm Zach Farmer, and uh, thanks for listening.